Well, good evening. If you want to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3, we'll be there in just a moment. I want to start by saying thank you for your patience and your help this morning. Things went about as well as we could have expected. A few little hiccups here and there, but everything went very smoothly. I want to thank Don and Mike and, and, and Steve and Luke and Charles and all those who had a hand in helping us get things in order and to make them run as smoothly as possible. We had so many like Chad and Brad and others behind the scenes making sure it was a coordinated effort, and we thank you all so much for that. It was a trial run, something that we have discussed and maybe need to employ uh, later on as we continue to grow. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say is our LTC students are back and what a weekend they had. I mean, what a wonderful job that they did. And thank you so much, Stephen and Josie and, and Luke and Caroline, all those that work with our LTC students and all those who went to chaperone, uh, they were amazing. If you, on social media, on Facebook, you can, you can see a lot of their performances and the things that they did, they were outstanding. So uh, congratulations to them. Um, you know, we're going to do John chapter 3, and you're probably thinking, well, this is a little out of order in our His Word study. But that's because we missed this one on a Sunday night. And I can't remember exactly why we missed it. I was either gone or you were gone, one or the other. But <laughs> So, never to waste a sermon, we're going to come back to it. And look at John 3, 1 through 21. There was a story about this gentleman that was preaching at a congregation and the people there were so appreciative of the job that he did that they wanted to reward him some way. And so one Sunday morning, they presented him and his wife with a, a gift card to a five-star restaurant in the city where they lived. This was a very ritzy, upscale restaurant that they never could have afforded to go to had it not been for this gift card. And so they were very appreciative, and, and, and the night came where they were going to redeem their gift card, and they got all dressed up. The man even washed and waxed his car because he knew there'd be valet parking. He wanted to look like high society. And so he and his wife go to this five-star restaurant. They give the valet the keys, and they go inside, and they strut into the place like they're, like they're rich and like they've got all this kind of money, and they sit down at the table, and money was no object because they had the gift card, so they ordered the most expensive things on the menu, and they ate, and they lived it up, and it was exactly as they expected. The food was great. It was cooked to perfection, and when all was said and done, the waitress comes by, and the man looks at his wife and says, honey, hand me the gift card, and she says, I don't have the gift card. What are you talking about? And she said, well, I thought you had it. Now, the moral of that story is you can look rich, you can act rich, but without the gift card, it doesn't matter, right? And the same is true from a spiritual perspective. You know, you can look holy, you can act holy, you can walk holy, you can even smell holy. But without Jesus Christ, without a life of righteousness, you're not holy. Look at John chapter 3. Starting in verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said, are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Do you think Nicodemus was a religious person? Hey, you better believe it. Nicodemus was absolutely a religious person. He was part of the 70-member council known as the Sanhedrin. And if you want to know something about the Sanhedrin, it's kind of like we would think of maybe the Senate or Congress. Nicodemus would have been similar to what we would deem a U.S. senator or uh, maybe a, a Supreme Court justice, something of that nature. Only the best of the best got to sit on this council. Only the religious elite got to be a part of this council. So Nicodemus was a religious man and one that would be considered in high esteem in his culture at this time. Knowing all this that we know about Nicodemus and knowing what we know about the Pharisees, it seems rather peculiar that Nicodemus would approach Jesus and say what he did. But it should be noted that not all Pharisees could be lumped together. There were some good apples in the bunch. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, which is significant. Why do you think he would come at night? Well, because he didn't have to risk his prominent position. He didn't have to risk being seen by the other people on the council as well as the, the, those who were around him. And so he comes to Jesus at night and he says, I know you're from God. In other words, my cohorts may not think much of you. But I know that you're from God because no one can do these things that you do. Many may think you're a blasphemer, but I don't. And Jesus responds by saying, finally, somebody gets it. Thank you. No, that's not how he responds. He doesn't respond by saying, I'm so glad that you're not stiff-necked and, and, and a brood of vipers like those, other, like those other Pharisees. No, he immediately responds by saying, well, okay, you believe in me, then here's what you need to do. You must be born of the water and the Spirit. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And after some confusion, Nicodemus says, uh, Nicodemus says something about how can a person be born again and all that. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And what I gather from Jesus' words here are this. Nicodemus, your religion can't save you. Now, do you think Nicodemus thought he was going to heaven? Absolutely he did. If for no other reason, because he was a Jew. Because of his heritage alone, he was going to go to heaven. And in essence, Jesus is saying, no, you're not. Not unless you're born of the water and the Spirit. This religion that you are mixed up in cannot save you. 
Jesus pulls the rug of salvation out from under him when he says, Truly, truly, unless one, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And you may disagree, at least at face value, but think about this statement. Religion alone, religion alone cannot save anyone. Because religion alone cannot deal with our most fundamental human need. The need for sinners to be reconciled to a holy God. And this episode with Nicodemus into context surrounds one of the most popular Bible verses of all time. Even non-Christians know John 3.16. You can turn on the TV on a sporting event and you can see the crowd and, and as the camera pans the crowd and you can see probably someone holding up a sign that reads John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Why do you think that verse is so popular? Because it's easy. Right? Because it's easy. Just believe. Just believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Whoever believes, just believe. But do we realize, and I don't think we always do, do we realize that these words are found in the context of Jesus talking to Nicodemus, telling him what he must do to be saved? And it was more than believing. Unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, cannot see the kingdom of God. Look at verses 17 and following. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. You know, there's a guest that was being shown around the Louvre in Paris and he was being shown all the great masterpieces like the Mona Lisa. And when the tour was ended, The man looked at the tour guide and said, I don't think much of your old pictures. And the tour guide said, well, you need to understand that these pictures are not on trial. The one who's observing them is. You know, how how do we react when we encounter greatness? How did Nicodemus react when he encountered greatness? He obviously had an admiration for Jesus. He was obviously a huge fan. But when the rubber met the road, how did he respond? When Jesus put conditions into the mix, how did he respond? Nicodemus stood in light of Jesus, exposed, right? He was on trial, so to speak. He has been confronted with the light. How is he going to respond to the light, the greatness? Is he going to drop everything and follow? He's been confronted with truth, and that confrontation demands a decision always. Anytime we're confronted with truth, it demands a decision on our part. Will Nicodemus respond to the beauty and the greatness of Jesus Christ? Will he turn and walk away? His reaction, of course, is going to determine his fate. It's going to determine determine the rest of his life and the direction that he's going to follow. Nicodemus may have gotten more than he bargained for. He may have thought that he was going to have a nice, pleasant conversation with Jesus. 
But Jesus takes it to another level, and he makes it clear that believing is not just a mental assent or acknowledgement, that believing equals following. In fact, you can read through the New Testament and find the words for believe and faith, and the Greek word is always inherently includes action, doing something. Jesus is confronting Nicodemus in his belief and saying, you got to do something here. You got to be born of the water and the spirit. You condemn yourself if you turn and walk away. Once you've been exposed to the light, if you still choose darkness, it's going to be bad news for you. Nicodemus had been exposed. Jesus dealt with this constantly with the Pharisees, their blindness and their, their, their being in the dark. And as he appropriated light to them, many of them turned and walked away and chose darkness instead. But you see, Jesus didn't just want Nicodemus at night. He wanted him in the daytime as well. Guys, you ever date a girl in high school, maybe the woman you're currently married to, and at one point she says, uh, so what are we? And you say, well, what do you mean? And she says, well, when you introduce me to people, what do you say? Am I your girlfriend or am I just a friend? I mean, what am I? And you stammer and you stutter around because you're not real sure, right? You don't, that's a loaded question. You're not real sure. Or maybe you've been dating this girl for quite some time and she wants to know, well, when are you going to put a ring on my finger? When are we going to take this relationship to the next level? And you think, well, I thought the relationship was fine the way it was. But you know what happens when you take the relationship to the next level? You know what happens when you put a ring on her finger or you, you ask for her hand in marriage? You know what happens when you marry her? It complicates things. It's when you love the complication that it's good, right? And many of us here love the complication that comes with marriage. And it's not really a complication at all because we understand that we love this person, so therefore we overlook certain things. But defining the relationship always complicates things, at least in some ways. And that's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. You've got to define this relationship. You can't just stand off to the side and be an admirer. You've got to figure out what you want this to be. You can choose light or you can choose darkness, but at some point you've got to define the relationship because following Jesus will always interfere with your life, always. Now, maybe you're sitting there and saying, well, it doesn't interfere with my life. Well, then you need to do something about your discipleship because your relationship with Jesus, your following, your discipleship will interfere with your life. And if it doesn't, then maybe you're not following. And that's what Nicodemus faced. That's what we all face when we go all in in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Am I willing to accept the complications that come along with it? Am I willing to let it interfere with my life? Religion can only take you so far. It cannot exist, though, without a relationship, which is what Jesus was alluding to with Nicodemus. In 2012, there's this Christian speaker by the name of Jefferson Bethke, and he came out with a viral video that's got like over 33 million views. And maybe you've seen it. If you haven't, you can, you can Google it and look at it. But the name of the video was Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus. And as I said, the video went viral. It still continues to be circulated. And what Jefferson Bethke did in this video is I think he made a few valid points. But I disagree with the premise of what he's trying to say. 
What he did is he created a dichotomy that I believe isn't there. A portion of his lyrics are like this. Now back to the point, one thing is vital to mention. How Jesus and religion are on opposite spectrums. See, one's the work of God, but one's a man-made invention. See, one is the cure, but the other's the infection. See, because religion says do, Jesus says done. Religion says slave, Jesus says son. Religion puts you in bondage while Jesus sets you free. Religion makes you blind, but Jesus makes you see. And that's why religion and Jesus are two different clans. But are they? Are they two different clans? Are there two piles here? One Jesus, one religion? Let me remind you of some scriptures. Jesus, talking to the Pharisees about their religion, says, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. In James's epistle, he says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. James, of course, is speaking of hypocrisy. He's speaking about talking the talk and walking the walk. What you profess must be what you also practice. Otherwise, you're a hypocrite, right? Your religion is not worth one cent. So religion must lead to right actions and right beliefs. The Pharisees were all about rule keeping. They had turned something that was meant to be uh, good and right and, and, and religious. They turned it into something that was rote and mechanical. It was all about rule keeping. And you've heard me say it before, rules modify behavior. That's all they do. And I've seen, I've encountered many Christians, and you have as well, that were all about following the rules. Is that wrong? No. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But rules modify behavior. That's all they do. They don't save anybody. The relationship is what saves someone. The relationship is the motivation. It's who you are following. It's who you're invested with. Because the rules mean nothing without the right motivation. The Pharisees proved that. And the Pharisees had this warped way of thinking that as long as I followed the rules, then I was a better person. I've never killed anybody. Therefore, I'm religious and I'm great and I'm good before God. Well, we all know people who've never killed anyone that are not any closer to God than anyone else, right? So it's not just about rules. It's about the reason for following the rules. Religion can be worthless. And I think it would be safe to assume that God is not impressed with religion just for the sake of religion. How many religions exclude God and Jesus? Those would be worthless religions. Any religion that doesn't make Jesus the focal point is a worthless religion. Any religion that says you must hate a certain group of people is a worthless religion. Any religion that says you got to strap a bomb to yourself and blow up people, including yourself, is a worthless religion. Religions can be worthless, and there are many of them. But there's not two camps here. And we've got to stop pitting Jesus against religion. At least, valid religion that's found in Christianity. After the terror attacks in London in 2017, actress and singer Bette Midler took to Twitter and she tweeted these words, more sorrow and grief at the hands of madmen in London. Men and religion are worthless. I assume Bette Midler is an intelligent woman. 
But that's an ignorant tweet. It's an ignorant statement. Because there are some men that are worthless. And there are some religions that are worthless. But to make a huge categorical claim and a generalization is not wise. Certainly not biblical. When we look at biblical religion, you go back to the Pharisees. Theirs was a religion that was rooted in God and the Old Testament. Theirs was a religion that looked forward to the Messiah. Now granted, they perverted it, yet still theirs was a valid religion set in place by a good and holy God. And by the way, the simple definition of religion is this. It is the belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling power especially a personal God or God's ideas about the relationship between science and religion. It's a particular system of faith and worship. It's a pursuit or interest to which someone ascribes supreme importance. It cannot be argued that God chose a people and he put in place certain commandments and practices for the purpose of protecting them and sustaining them and teaching them and providing for them and guiding for them. The old law was a faith-based system that required certain practices and certain devotions on the part of the people that were expressed in obedience like tithing and keeping the Sabbath and, and offering sacrifices. You know what that's called? It's called a religion. You can't get around that. I mean, it's what it is. You also can't get around the fact that God's people turned something that was meant to be spiritual into something rote, routine, mechanical. They perverted it, but the intent was always good, and it was put in place by a holy God. Just because people messed it up doesn't mean that God established a worthless religion. Slide over to the New Testament. Again, James chapter 1, verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit the widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So there's good religion. I mean, James even says it here. There's religion that is pure and undefiled even. And isn't it interesting that it involves action? involves doing something. There is a type of religion that God sanctions. Religion can be right. Notice the primary feature of that religion, to visit orphans and to take care of widows. What did Jesus say were the foremost commandments? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, to love your neighbor as yourself. Is that not the gist of Christianity? Is that not Christianity in a nutshell? Love God, love your neighbor. I mean, that's it, right? Now, obviously, we flesh that out, but in a, in, in a very short synopsis, that's what religion is. That's what Christianity is. Can we not say that Christianity is a religion? If you can't call it a religion, then what do you call it? Simply put, Christianity is a religion based on Jesus Christ. Religion is not just something you believe, it's, 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 it's something that you do. And so Christianity is about doing what Jesus taught. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, right? It's about following in his footsteps. A basic primary dictionary definition would be the beliefs and practices related to Jesus Christ based on the, the sacred scriptures. Christianity is a religion based on the person and teachings of the Jesus of Nazareth. And, and, and hear me on this. 
It's a religion that finds its meaning in a relationship. Because without the relationship, it's worthless. It doesn't mean anything, right? Take Christ out of Christianity and what's it good for? Visit the widows and orphans in their distress. Love your enemies. Love one another. Encourage one another. Stimulate one another to love and good needs. Bear one another's burdens. All the one another passages in the Bible. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. The Good Samaritan, the sheep and the goats, the Great Commission. All of these. Community is what makes Christianity. And it all starts with our heavenly relationship. The church is the bride of Christ. We are God's children. God is our father. Jesus is our friend. Jesus and Christianity are not on opposite ends of the spectrum. They go hand in hand. They are intricately woven together because without Jesus, there is no Christianity. And Christianity without Jesus renders the religion worthless. The relationship is what defines the religion. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Did these people do some religious things? Seems that way. But why were they worthless? Because they had no relationship. There was no relationship, and that's really what it boils down to. The religion means nothing without the relationship. Christianity is a relational religion. And you can't hate the religion that finds its meaning in the relationship. That's ridiculous. When it comes to religion, there's only one valid one, and it's Christianity. Because it's based and centered on the teachings of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. It's set forth to us in the Holy Scriptures. But there's no getting around it. It is a religion. And we've got to stop with this mess of pitting Jesus against religion. I love Jesus but hate religion. Or, you know, I, I mean, yeah, maybe you hate some religions. But not Christianity. You can't do it that way. It's not how this works. Christianity is a relational religion. Isn't that what Jesus came to die for, is the relationship? Yes, I know he came and he died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins to show his victory over sin and death. He died to buy us back because God wants the relationship that badly. It's a relational religion. And so therefore, it means nothing without the relationship. The relationship defines it. You know, I could stand up here and say, I love my wife, but I hate, I hate marriage. You know, I, I just, I don't see the big deal about marriage. I mean, it's just a piece of paper. It's a certificate. I mean, why do I have to stand in front of a, you know, justice of the peace or a preacher to get married? You know, I, I love my wife, but I don't care much about marriage. What I've, what I've done is I've created two camps, haven't I? You know what else I've done? I've misrepresented marriage by being vague, not properly defining it. Because once I properly define marriage from a biblical standpoint, once I understand the quote-unquote rules of engagement, once I understand what it means to be in a covenant relationship with God and my spouse, then I see it differently, right? I can't love my wife and hate marriage. The two go hand in hand. They're intricately woven together. That'd be like saying, I love apples, but I hate fruit. It just doesn't make any sense. 
That whole premise is ridiculous. There's not two piles here. There's one pile. It's all about Jesus. It's all about religion. It's all about the relationship. They all go hand in hand, right? We need to stop it with this Christianity versus Jesus stuff or, you know, I love God, but I hate the church or I love Jesus, but hate his bride and those kind of things. You hear those things. They're, they're buzz phrases. They're catchphrases nowadays, and they're, they're ridiculous. They don't make sense. You can't love Jesus and hate his church. You can't have the relationship and not have the religion. It just doesn't work that way. Jesus gives life to everything that we do. Everything that we are, our relationship with him and our relationship with each other is what gives meaning and purpose to the beliefs and the practices that we carry out. The relationship makes the religion. Thankful for this church family, and I'm so grateful for your, your being here today. And, and we, we end every Sunday the same way, and, and that is if you have a need that we can help you with tonight, if... Maybe you need prayers. Maybe you need encouragement. Maybe, maybe, you have a, maybe you have a desire to study the Bible with someone. Maybe you're, maybe you're contemplating what it means to be a disciple and you're ready to take that next step. We want to help you with those things. But like we say every week, don't leave here without being right with God. Why would you do that? Don't play Russian roulette with your soul. Do something about it if you need to tonight. Dave's going to lead us in a song. If you have a need, come forward as we stand and as we sing.